Take your Bible and join me, if you would, in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter number 16. There are actually a lot of things in life that we would understand are worth protecting. And uh, they may be, that may be at least in part why we have so many different, um, I don't know, systems of warning. You know, sometimes we have these neighborhood systems. Even when I was a child, there was a system. If there was a problem, if someone needed to be warned, they actually had these little, a little cutout picture of a helping hand that people would post in their window. And, and if there was something going on, someone needed to be warned, you could go to that house and, and enact a warning. Today, we're, we're rife with warning labels. Everything comes with some kind of warning label, and some of them are rather ludicrous. They're a little silly, but they're intended to provide some warning. And the, the greater the concern, maybe we would even say the greater our love for someone or something, the greater the intensity of the warning. Uh, every year, Forbes magazine publishes a list of some of the more silly warning labels. These are all legitimate warning labels, but, but they are a little bit, um, when you stand back and look at them, it's a little bit silly. For example, uh, one company, Jabra, um, developed a product called the Drive and Talk. Drive and Talk. And it's a Bluetooth speakerphone, you know, for talking while you're driving. And it comes with this warning, uh, never operate your speakerphone while driving. It's the drive and talk, okay? And then one chainsaw manufacturer had this warning, do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. If you need that warning, you should not be using a chainsaw, okay? Um, you know the, the reflective uh, shields you put in your dashboard uh, to keep the sun out? Uh, one of them comes with a warning, do not drive with sunshield in place. Again, very helpful. Um, uh, of course, a lot of irons say, do not iron clothes while on your body. Some of you have disregarded that warning. Um, a baby stroller, baby stroller, legitimate baby stroller warning that said, remove child before folding, okay? <clears throat> okay, so while we should at least acknowledge the, the reason for a warning, we should take note that warnings are commensurate with what it is that we're trying to protect. So if the danger is small, the warning should be small. If the danger is great, the warning should be great. And then we also understand that there is a, a, a rising intensity of warning when there is a rising understanding of worth and a rising sense of love. I think it's one of the reasons why when Paul is concluding his letter to the church at Rome and he has been just filled with greetings, tell so-and-so I said hello, and then he tells us a little bit about those people with just a few descriptive words, but we understand just from the line upon line, the person after person, these people matter to the Apostle Paul. While he's greeting, sending these greetings to people, he, he interrupts this greeting, and then he sends this warning, and then it's on to additional greetings. It's almost as if something came to mind, and he said, I've got to stop right now because I can't close this letter without this warning. You can almost hear a parental tone in his writing. 
It's like a mother who is hugging her oldest child, bound for college, and offers some words that may sound like this. Make sure you tell Dr. So-and-so I said hello. I had him for History of Civ when I was in college. He's a great teacher. And don't forget to. And make sure you remember to always. And, and then her tone changes. And she says, look at me. No, look at me. Don't ever. And then she adds the warning. You get this sense that when the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, make sure you greet so-and-so. They are fellow laborers. They stuck out their necks on multiple occasions for me. Don't forget to greet this person. They are fellow laborers together in the gospel. They have spent themselves and are being spent for the advancement of the gospel. And then his tone changes. And now he gets to a warning because of his great love for the church at Rome. Why do people offer warnings? Because we all know that anything worth protecting will eventually come under some kind of assault. The title of our message today is Worth Protecting. With that in mind, we could ask the question, how valuable is your faith? And let me ask the question again. How valuable is your faith? And I would submit to you that the more you and I understand the incredible worth of our faith, the greater lengths we are willing to go to protect it. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 16. Let's look together at our passage, our text today in whole, and then we'll break it down into smaller parts and, and try to understand the warning from the Apostle Paul. Verse number 17, Romans chapter 16. Here the Bible says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. That's a good word to circle in your Bible. Contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. As we said a few moments ago, Paul realizes that anything worth protecting will eventually come under attack. As we start to think about, well, what's being attacked today? Let's think about this for just a moment. What is it that in our lifetime right now, what are some things that are being attacked? And then we ask the corresponding question, are these things that are also worth protecting? Is marriage under attack today? At least in our culture, marriage is under attack in ways that are unprecedented for us. So there is some continual assault by the enemy at redefining what marriage truly is. Marriage is under attack. How about who it is that God made you to be? Sometimes we refer to that today as gender identity. Is the fact that God created male and female, created he, them, under attack today? 
Again, in our lifetime, it's under attack in ways that we've never seen before. Is it worth protecting? If we want it to go in a more general way, how about the family? Is the family under attack today? Or the church, the church established by Jesus Christ, him being the rock. How about the deity of Jesus Christ? Is it under attack today? How about this, the legitimacy of authority? The legitimacy of authority. Who is it that actually gives authority its power? Well, that's Almighty God. Is authority under attack today? Who are, and then we use the proverbial they, to tell me what to do? How about modesty? Is modesty under attack today? Is modesty taught in Scripture? That may look different at different times, at different places. It's appropriate here. It's not appropriate there. But is modesty something that the enemy finds worth attacking? Sobriety, private ownership, personal purity, even something as basic as appropriate shame. Appropriate shame. Is it under attack? In other words, are we blushing at anything today? Or is there no such thing as shame? And then we stand and take words like, forgive the use, but we take words like pride and we revel in the word as opposed to understanding there should be some sense of shamefacedness regarding certain things in our life and in this world today. Is there anything today that is worth protecting? So Paul is about to give us something that he just, I don't know if the Holy Spirit brings it to mind and says, Paul, before the pen is placed in its resting position, this is something that is worth protecting. Again, we're going to look at this in three parts today. The first thing we're going to see is a careful observation. A careful observation. And then we're going to go into a carnal operation. And then finally, we'll look at a continual obligation. A continual obligation. Let's begin today with what we'll refer to again as a careful observation. Look again at verse number 17. A careful observation, Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren... Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. That is the teaching. These things that are established, they're unmovable. These are truths that are true for all people, all places, and all times. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. And avoid them. And avoid them. Listen, Campus Church, this is not unity at all cost. This is not, we have to do whatever we can to protect the unity of the body. No, this is purity at all cost. This is the Apostle Paul saying, listen, there are some things that are actually worth dividing over, and it is the doctrine which has been offered to them. He's not saying, come on, we all have to just be this one happy family. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, there are some things that have to be your careful observation. 
Of course, even in Jesus' day, there were, there were those that were constantly leading people astray. This is not unlike today for monetary gain. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse number 12, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Jesus was not willing to pursue unity at all costs. He's saying there's something that we have to be constantly on the watch for, and that is the purity of the Father's house. A man named Dan Graves, he was writing for the Christian History Institute, noted something that happened in 1517. Uh, in this month, the day was October 31st, 1517. Happened in Wittenberg, Germany. And it was one of the most famous events in Christian history. A priest named Martin Luther nailed a challenge to debate on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. It consisted of 95 statements. We refer to them as the 95 theses. Against the practice of indulgences. Statements that Luther was willing to defend. He said, let's go ahead and let's debate these. And Luther was well prepared to defend them. Indulgences at first were rare. They consisted of shortening a penance imposed on a contrite sinner. But they had become big business for the popes who sold them as a source of revenue. In fact, in the 13th and 14th centuries, they came to be seen as removing actual guilt. By the 16th century, they were hawked as covering the sins, both of the living and the souls that they purported had gone to purgatory, waiting to move on to heaven. People commonly bought them with this kind of understanding. Johann Tetzel was a, a notorious peddler of indulgences, and he coined a jingle. This is what Johann Tetzel said. He said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And Luther vehemently opposed this. Luther said, there is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of the purgatory. Immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. And Luther goes on to say with great boldness, the Pope's pardons are not able to remove the least pardonable of sins as far as their guilt is concerned. What the Roman church was doing was charging fees for forgiveness. So notice what Paul says to the church at Rome and what the Holy Spirit through his word tells us today. He says, mark them. Mark them. He says, all right, these are marked as different from those who have been teaching the doctrine that has been given to you. So pause a moment, he says, take note of, give careful attention to. The word marks an interesting Greek word. It's skapeto, skapeto. We, we get the word scope from the word. Sometimes we add it to the word microscope. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, all right, scope this out. I mean, let's focus now our attention on the doctrine because there are those that are going to insert into the church at Rome 
doctrine that is condemnable doctrine. It's teaching that must be rejected. Church, today, there are still those that are introducing doctrine that is contrary to the word that has been delivered unto us. Now, we try to soften one thing so that it might be a little bit more palatable to either ourselves or to the culture or for the sake of unity. But the apostle Paul says, no, 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 mark them that teach contrary to the doctrine. What he's saying essentially is don't let down your guard. Don't be misled. One commentary said it this way, and this is an important insert into the, okay, mark them. One commentary said this. He said, Paul is not talking about what today is often referred to as a witch hunt. An effort that is determined to find fault, whether it is there or not. Nor is he talking about legalistic and often mean-spirited and unloving litmus tests for an orthodoxy that is more rigid than scripture. That's quite a statement. What he's saying is, okay, mark them, listen, note them. He's going to say, avoid them. But you know what he doesn't say? He says, okay, come on, let's go on this witch hunt and let's find out how someone is doing something differently than we do it. Not doctrinally, just practically different than we do it. Those are some of the challenges that we face today when we're comfortable or accustomed to doing certain, doing things a certain way. For example, we should all believe that the church should regularly assemble. Okay, that's something that's taught throughout scripture. But there are times when those who believe that they are defending the truth when in actuality, they are simply defending their own system. Now think through this. They're, they're defending their own system for defending the truth. Do you understand what we're talking about here? There are those who put a good system in place to defend the truth. For example, should the church regularly assemble? And the answer is absolutely. Okay, so, so at Campus Church, what's our practice for assembly? And by the way, I think that a person, when they connect with a church, they should practice how does that church practice? How does that church assemble? So here at Campus Church, we assemble a lot. Now, I, I like the schedule for assembly. We assemble for Bible study groups Sunday morning, Sunday school. We assemble for this service, our worship service where we're together. And then we will actually reassemble this evening and once again open the scriptures, open our mouths and praise. On Sunday, essentially, we're meeting three times on Sunday. And then we add another assembly time on Wednesday evening for another opportunity for the church to open their mouths and praise. And we worship God through the looking into the teaching and preaching of the word. That, that's our assembly. And some might say, I like that assembly. Okay, we're following the simple admonition found in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, now let me ask you this. Is this how every church must assemble? And have you ever found yourself leaning toward marking them who may not assemble in the same fashion that we assemble. Now we assemble, that's our schedule. 
That's one of the ways we are protecting the truth. That we don't just like, hey, should we meet this week? Should we assemble? Should we do? We don't do that. We have a regular assembly. What if a church does it differently than campus church does? Well, you know, they, um, they, they don't meet on Wednesday anymore. They used to, but they don't meet on Wednesday anymore. You, you, I don't know if you heard that or not. Well, listen, uh, do, they, do they biblically, is that, the, is that what they need to do? Do you know, some might say that if we really followed the, the early church practice, they met daily going from house to house. Every day the church assembled. Some are like, hey, let's not get carried away. The point we're trying to make is sometimes we mark them who don't protect the truth in the same way that we protect the truth. Let's back up just a little bit and let's ask the question, are we all striving to protect the truth? Are we rallying around the same doctrine, not the same means of protecting the doctrine? When writing to the church at Galatia, Paul said this, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Listen to the lengths to which he goes. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That is strong language. This is why we must have a continual, careful observation. Scope it out, look closely. We are to take note of them. I might add, this does not mean that we become hostile toward them. We don't become physically violent. Paul is not advocating for any of that. What he is advocating for is a careful observation that we would watch out, be on guard, know what is worth protecting. Next, he goes beyond this and he tells us why we are to have this careful observation. Well, it is because of their carnal operation. They're they're operating in a manner that is connected to their flesh. This is what I want, and this is what it's going to provide for me. Again, look in your Bible, Romans chapter 16. Let's start in verse 17 and into 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Okay, so mark whom? Who is it that Paul says, hey, hey, uh, uh, pay attention, scope them out, put put your blinders on, remove the distractions, and look carefully at what it is, who it is that you're supposed to mark. Mark whom? Well, he says, those that cause divisions and offenses. Division, it means simply that. There's There's no secret meaning behind the word. Mark those that are causing fractures in the body. 
Like they're starting to introduce some things. Well, you know, some of the things that, and this is inconsistent with the doctrine that's been given to us, that's been handed down, that's taught in the scriptures. And they say, you know, I've always wondered about, or recently I came across, you should take a look into, mark them, why? Because of a carnal operation. Mark them that cause division. And then he goes on and he says, and offense. The word offenses is the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon. It's the word that we get scandal from. There's something now that's actually scandalous that's undergirding this introduction of some new truth. And, and now he says, mark them. Why? Because they're causing division. And do you know what that's going to lead to? Some regrettable, sad scandal in the church. Paul tells us, mark them. And then he says, avoid them. He says, not engage them, not debate them, not write about them on social media. He says simply, avoid them. I find it interesting how oftentimes we want to now mix it up with the person who is introducing those things that are scandalous, that are causing division and offenses. And you know, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, now listen, you got to get right in there and start to debate them so that you can squash this whole big issue that's going to flow. He doesn't say that. He says, here's what you do. Stay away from them. Stop engaging it. Stop legitimizing it by your argument. He says, avoid them. Why do we avoid them? Well, because they serve themselves. Romans chapter 16, verse number 18. Again, he says, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but do you notice this? Their own belly. They're serving themselves. Do you see the carnal aspect of whom Paul is warning us? This is an operation driven not by the spirit of God, but by the fleshly desires of men. They serve their own belly, their own physical desires. And then he says, not only because they serve themselves, but because they preach now, this is an important expression. They preach another Christ. Another Christ, which truly there is not another. Once you know the truth, Jesus, we are then to avoid the lie. The word avoid means go out of your way. Clearly avoid. Don't even engage. Proverbs 26, verse number 4 helps us to understand the why. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. He's saying, listen, don't be the fool. Okay, so that person has some erroneous argument. He says, stop engaging it. Well, well, I'm going to show them from Scripture. He says, listen, if they're introducing things that are contrary to this doctrine, he says, avoid them. Don't you become what they are foolish by engaging in the argument. What these false teachers are doing again is striving to preach another Jesus. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Notice what the scripture says. But I fear, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, whom ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, 
ye might well bear with him. He says, listen, if somebody comes and they say, hey, hey, listen, here's the Jesus I want to present to you, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. Paul says, I fear lest you might bear with him. You might give him a voice. You might give his argument some consideration. He says, no, 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 no. He says, you stay away from that because they're preaching a Jesus that is not the Jesus of Scripture. You know, we have that in all kinds of man's religions today. I mean, in no way, shape, or form to be unkind. But there is only one Jesus, and he is taught in the pages of the Word of God. We don't, we don't now say, well, well, the Jesus that I worship is, well, then you've created another Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of Scripture. For example, the Mormons have a Jesus, but he is the brother of Lucifer. Their Jesus had several wives and is a God just like you could become, ruling over your own planet. And their Jesus is not part of the Holy Trinity. This is another Jesus. Then you have the Jesus of Islam. He was a prophet and a teacher on par with Muhammad. His role was to help prepare people for the great leader from Allah coming at the end of time to judge the world. Their Jesus didn't die for the sins of the people. Because in Islam, salvation comes from good works. Neither was he resurrected. Instead, they teach that God took Jesus alive into heaven. And someone else was crucified that actually looked like Jesus. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. This is another Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus. He's a son of Jehovah, but he's not God. Rather, he was a perfect man, just like Adam was originally. Before he became a man, he was the archangel Michael. And the witnesses believe to be Jehovah's first created being. They teach that just believing in Jesus is not enough to save us. We also have to become a Jehovah's witness, be baptized, obey God, uh, obey, um, God by their laws all of our life to prove ourselves worthy. Their Jesus wasn't physically resurrected but came back to life in spirit form. Then they say he returned to earth in 1914 and will become a physical being again at Armageddon. This is another Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible was the one who was in the beginning with God. Jesus himself said, I am the one presented in scripture. And Jesus alone is exclusively exclusively the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father but by him. Paul warned the church at Philippi that the same carnal operation was happening to them. This happens in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 17. Brethren, Paul says, be followers together of me, and here's our word again, mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse number 19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. That sounds familiar. And whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation, that is our citizenship, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is warning us against those who preach and teach another Jesus. And they do so for reasons that benefit themselves. It is their carnal operation. Now, as we wrap this up, look at a continual obligation. 
This is what we are to be continually obligating ourselves to do. Verse number 19. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you, here's our obligation, continually. I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Campus Church. When you think about that which you and I have the potential to expose ourselves to, are you and I practicing a pattern of interacting with the world in such a way that helps us be simple concerning the evil and wise to that which is good? I find it interesting that many times we ourselves might define our own interaction with the world to such a degree that we have become worldly wise. And God's imploring us here. He's saying this is your continual obligation. You should be wise unto that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. The word wise here, it means skilled. Skilled. You know, sometimes today we use the expression, oh, wow, he's got skills. Okay. Why do we say that? Because we stand back and we watch someone who is highly proficient and we say, oh, wow, that guy's got skills. Um, I, I enjoy watching tennis. At this last year's U.S. Open, the two that battled it out in the finals, both in the men's and the women's finals, it just was like, whoa, they've got skills. To have these long rallies that are going 30, 40, even 50 shots back and forth and see they're just physically spent after demonstrating skill. I stand back and say, whoa, that's incredible they've got skills. To watch on a football field, some guy stand back and he's protected by linemen and then he throws that ball 40, 50, 60 yards and a guy without breaking his stride can have this trajectory such that he catches the ball and cradles it and continues to run. And we look at that with mind-blowing amazement and say, they've got skills. Those skills are the product not just of some lucky toss. Wow, boy, man, they, they got fortunate in the finals of the U.S. Open tennis match. Th those are the products of day after day, grueling hour upon hour, week after week, months years of skill developing sometimes the intensity with which we have prepared ourselves to be skilled to stand should cause us to stand back and say can a person truly develop the skills necessary in this day and age to stand with the effort that i am investing in truth campus church we do, look back, we do stand back and look at people and we say, oh, wow, incredible skills. Might you and I understand our continual obligation to develop those skills necessary, having done all, to stand? I think this is what the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he said, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses, good word here, exercised to discern both good and evil. They are to be wise unto that which is good, meaning that their knowledge and behavior are to be congruent. We might say it this way, if you really believe something is true, your choices should adjust accordingly. 
Is Jesus Christ king? Is Jesus Christ the centerpiece of all things? Then doesn't it make sense that our choices about life should be in accordance with the same? Simple concerning evil. Essentially, he's saying that there should be times when others might be laughing and, uh, and we might be silent, wondering what was so funny about that. Because we are simple concerning those things that others quite possibly should be ashamed of. When we think about this continual obligation, we, we summarize it by thinking about the sufficiency of Jesus. I was thinking about this hymn, My Faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Paul is writing in this in this um, closing thought of, tell so-and-so I said hello, and oh, by the way, there are some things, church, he says, that are worth protecting. May our lives and may our actions demonstrate the same. God, the person of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and the truths surrounding him are truths worth protecting.